Chapter Three of Work: A Story of Experience. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Lee Paquette, January two thousand nine. Work: A Story of Experience by Louisa May Alcott, Chapter Three, Actress. Feeling that she had all the world before her where to choose, and that her next step ought to take her up at least one round higher on the ladder she was climbing, Christie decided not to try going out to service again. She knew very well that she would never live with Irish mates, and could not expect to find another Hepsy. So she tried to get a place as companion to an invalid, but failed to secure the only situation of the sort that was offered her because she mildly objected to waiting on a nervous cripple all day and reading aloud half the night. The old lady called her an impertinent baggage, and Christie retired in great disgust, resolving not to be a slave to anybody. Things seldom turn out as we plan them, and after much waiting and hoping for other work, Christie at last accepted about the only employment which had not entered her mind. Among the boarders at Mrs. Flint's were an old lady and her pretty daughter, both actresses at a respectable theatre. Not stars by any means, but good second-rate players, doing their work creditably and earning an honest living. The mother had been kind to Christie in offering advice and sympathizing with her disappointments. The daughter, a gay little lass, had taken Christie to the theatre several times, there to behold her in all the gauzy glories that surround the nymphs of spectacular romance. To Christie this was a great delight, for though she had pored over her father's Shakespeare till she knew many scenes by heart, she had never seen a play till Lucy led her into what seemed an enchanted world. Her interest and admiration pleased the little actress, and sundry lifts when she was hurried with her dresses made her grateful to Christie. The girl's despondent face, as she came in day after day from her unsuccessful quest, told its own story, though she uttered no complaint, and these friendly souls laid their heads together, eager to help her in their own dramatic fashion. "'I've got it! I've got it! All hail to the Queen!' was the cry that one day startled Christie, as she sat thinking anxiously, while sewing mock pearls on a crown for Mrs. Black. Looking up, she saw Lucy just home from rehearsal, going through a series of pantomimic evolutions, suggestive of a warrior doing battle with incredible valor, and a very limited knowledge of the noble art of self-defense. "'What have you got? Who is the queen?' she asked, laughing, as the breathless hero lowered her umbrella and laid her bonnet at Christie's feet." "'You are to be the queen of the Amazons in our new spectacle "'at half a dollar a night for six or eight weeks, if the peace goes well.' "'No!' cried Christie, with a gasp. "'Yes!' cried Lucy, clapping her hands. "'And then she proceeded to tell her news with theatrical volubility. "'Mr. Sharp, the manager, wants a lot of tallish girls, "'and I told him I knew of a perfect dear.' He said, Bring her on, then, and I flew home to tell you. Now don't look wild and say no. 
you've only got to sing in one chorus, march in the grand procession, and lead your band in the terrific battle scene. The dress is splendid. Red tunic, tiger skin over shoulder, helmet, shield, lance, fleshings, sandals, hair down, and as much cork to your eyebrows as you like. Christie certainly did look wild, for Lucy had burst into the room like a small hurricane, and her rapid words rattled about the listener's ears as if a hailstorm had followed the gust. While Christie still sat with her mouth open, too bewildered to reply, Mrs. Black said in her cosy voice, "'Try it, me dear. It's just what you'll enjoy, and a capital beginning, I assure ye. For if you do well, old Sharp will want you again, and then when someone slips out of the company, you can slip in, and there you are, quite comfortable. Try it, me dear, and if you don't like it, drop it when the piece is over, and there's no harm done.' "'It's much easier and jollier than any of the things you are after. "'We'll stand by you like bricks, and in a week you'll say it's the best lark you ever had in your life. "'Don't be prim now, but say yes like a trump as you are,' added Lucy, "'waving a pink satin train temptingly before her friend. "'I will try it,' said Christie with sudden decision. "'feeling that something entirely new and absorbing "'was what she needed to expend the vigor, romance, "'and enthusiasm of her youth upon. "'With a shriek of delight, Lucy swept her off her chair "'and twirled her about the room "'as excitable young ladies are fond of doing "'when their joyful emotions need a vent. "'When both were giddy, they subsided into a corner "'and a breathless discussion of the important step. "'Though she had consented,' Christie had endless doubts and fears, but Lucy removed many of the former, and her own desire for pleasant employment conquered many of the latter. In her most despairing moods, she had never thought of trying this. Uncle Enos considered play-acting as the sum of all iniquity. What would he say if she went calmly to destruction by that road? Sad to relate, this recollection rather strengthened her purpose, for a delicious sense of freedom pervaded her soul, and the old defiant spirit seemed to rise up within her at the memory of her uncle's grim prophecies and narrow views. "'Lucy is happy, virtuous, and independent. Why can't I be so too if I have any talent? It isn't exactly what I should choose, but anything honest is better than idleness.' I'll try it anyway, and get a little fun, even if I don't make much money or glory out of it. So Christie held to her resolution in spite of many secret misgivings, and followed Mrs. Black's advice on all points with a docility which caused that sanguine lady to predict that she would be a star before she knew where she was. "'Is this the stage? How dusty and dull it is by daylight!' said Christie next day, as she stood by Lucy on the very spot where she had seen Hamlet die in great anguish two nights before. "'Bless you, child, it's in curl papers now, as I am of a morning. Mr. Sharp, here's an Amazon for you.' As she spoke, Lucy hurried across the stage, followed by Christie, wearing anything but an Amazonian expression just then. "'Ever on before?' 
abruptly asked a keen-faced little man, glancing with an experienced eye at the young person who stood before him bathed in blushes. "'No, sir.' "'Do you sing?' "'A little, sir.' "'Dance, of course.' "'Yes, sir.' "'Just take a turn across the stage, will you? Must walk well to lead a march.' As she went, Christie heard Mr. Sharp taking notes audibly. "'Good tread, capital figure, fine eye. She'll make up well and behave herself, I fancy.' A strong desire to make off seized the girl, but remembering that she had presented herself for inspection, she controlled the impulse and returned to him with no demonstration of displeasure, but a little more fire in the fine eye and a more erect carriage of the capital figure." "'All right, my dear. Give your name to Mr. Tripp, and your mind to the business, and consider yourself engaged.' With which satisfactory remark the little man vanished like a ghost. "'Lucy, did you hear that impertinent, my dear?' asked Christie, whose sense of propriety had received its first shock. "'Lord, child, all managers do that. They don't mean anything.' So be resigned, and thank your stars he didn't say love and darling, and kiss you as old Vining used to, was all the sympathy she got. Having obeyed orders, Lucy initiated her into the mysteries of the place, and then put her in a corner to look over the scenes in which she was to appear. Christie soon caught the idea of her part. Not a difficult matter, as there were but few ideas in the whole piece, after which she sat watching the arrival of the troop she was to lead. A most forlorn band of warriors, they seemed, huddled together and looking as if afraid to speak, lest they should infringe some rule, or to move, lest they be swallowed up by some unsuspected trap-door. Presently the ballet-master appeared. The orchestra struck up, and Christie found herself marching and countermarching at word of command. At first, a most uncomfortable sense of the absurdity of her position oppressed and confused her. Then the ludicrous contrast between the solemn anxiety of the troop and the fantastic evolutions they were performing amused her till the novelty wore off. The martial music excited her, the desire to please sharpened her wits, and natural grace made it easy for her to catch and copy the steps and poses given her to imitate. Soon she forgot herself, entered into the spirit of the thing, and exerted every sense to please, so successfully that Mr. Tripp praised her quickness at comprehension, Lucy applauded heartily from a fairy car, and Mr. Sharp popped his head out of a palace window to watch the Amazon's descent from the mountains of the moon. When the regular company arrived, the troop was dismissed till the progress of the play demanded their reappearance. Much interested in the piece, Christie stood aside under a palm tree, the foliage of which was strongly suggestive of a dilapidated green umbrella, enjoying the novel sights and sounds about her. Yellow-faced gentlemen and sleepy-eyed ladies roamed languidly about with much incoherent jabbering of parts and frequent explosions of laughter. Princes with varnished boots and suppressed cigars fought, bled, and died, without a change of countenance. Damsels of unparalleled beauty, according to the text, gaped in the faces of adoring lovers and crocheted serenely on the brink of annihilation. 
fairies in rubber boots and woolen headgear, disported themselves on flowery barks of canvas, or were suspended aloft with hooks in their backs like young Hindu devotees. Demons, guiltless of hoof or horn, clutched their victims with the inevitable ha-ha, and vanished darkly, eating peanuts. The ubiquitous Mr. Sharp seemed to pervade the whole theatre, for his voice came shrilly from above, or spectrally from below, and his active little figure darted to and fro like a critical will-o'-the-wisp. The grand march and chorus in the closing scene were easily accomplished, for as Lucy bade her, Christie sung with all her might, and kept step as she led her band with the dignity of a boadicea. No one spoke to her, few observed her, all were intent on their own affairs, and when the final shriek and bang died away without lifting the roof by its din, she could hardly believe that the dreaded first rehearsal was safely over. A visit to the wardrobe room to see her dress came next, and here Christie had a slight skirmish with the mistress of that department, relative to the length of her classical garments. As studies from the nude had not yet become one of the amusements of the elite of Little Babel, Christie was not required to appear in the severe simplicity of a costume consisting of a necklace, sandals, and a bit of gold fringe about the waist but was allowed an extra inch or two on her tunic, and departed much comforted by the assurance that her dress would not be a shock to modesty, as Lucy expressed it. "'Now look at yourself, and for my sake prove an honour to your country and a terror to the foe,' said Lucy, as she led her protégé before the green-room mirror on the first night of The Demon's Daughter, or The Castle of the Sun, the most magnificent spectacle ever produced upon the American stage." Christie looked and saw a warlike figure with glittering helmet, shield and lance, streaming hair and savage cloak. She liked the picture, for there was much of the heroic spirit in the girl, and even this poor counterfeit pleased her eye and filled her fancy with martial memories of Joan of Arc, Zenobia, and Britomart. "'Go to!' cried Lucy, who affected theatrical modes of speech. Don't admire yourself any longer, but tie up your sandals and come on. Be sure you rush down the instant I cry, Demon, I defy thee. Don't break your neck or pick your way like a cat in wet weather, but come with effect, for I want that scene to make a hit. Princess Caramfell swept away, and the Amazonian queen climbed to her perch among the painted mountains, where her troop already sat like a flock of pigeons shining in the sun. The gilded breastplate rose and fell with the quick beating of her heart, the spear shook with the trembling of her hand, her lips were dry, her head dizzy, and more than once, as she waited for her cue, she was sorely tempted to run away and take the consequences. But the thought of Lucy's good will and confidence kept her, and when the cry came she answered with a ringing shout, rushed down the ten-foot precipice, and charged upon the foe with an energy that inspired her followers, and quite satisfied the princess struggling in the demon's grasp. With clashing of arms and shrill war-cries, the rescuers of innocence assailed the sooty fiends who fell before their unscientific blows, with a rapidity which inspired in the minds of beholders a suspicion that the goblins' own voluminous tails tripped them up and gallantry kept them prostrate. As the last groan expired, the last agonized squirm subsided, 
the conquerors performed the intricate dance with which it appears the Amazons were wont to celebrate their victories. Then the scene closed with a glare of red light and a grand tableau of the martial queen standing in a bower of lances, the rescued princess gracefully fainting in her arms, and the vanquished demon scowling fiercely under her foot, while four-and-twenty disheveled damsels sang a song of exultation to the barbaric music of a tattoo on their shields. All went well that night, and when at last the girls doffed crown and helmet, they confided to one another the firm opinion that the success of the piece was in a great measure owing to their talent, their exertions, and went gaily home predicting for themselves careers as brilliant as those of Siddons and Rachel. It would be a pleasant task to paint the vicissitudes and victories of a successful actress, but Christie was no dramatic genius born to shine before the world and leave a name behind her. She had no talent except that which may be developed in any girl possessing the lively fancy, sympathetic nature, and ambitious spirit which make such girls naturally dramatic. This was to be only one of many experiences which were to show her her own weakness and strength, and through effort, pain, and disappointment, fit her to play a nobler part on a wider stage. For a few weeks Christie's illusions lasted. Then she discovered that the new life was nearly as humdrum as the old, that her companions were ordinary men and women, and her bright hopes were growing as dim as her tarnished shield. She grew unutterably weary of the castle of the sun, and found the demon's daughter an unmitigated bore. She was not tired of the profession, only dissatisfied with the place she held in it, and eager to attempt a part that gave some scope for power and passion. Mrs. Black wisely reminded her that she must learn to use her wings before she tried to fly, and comforted her with stories of celebrities who had begun as she was beginning, yet who had suddenly burst from their grub-like obscurity to adorn the world as splendid butterflies. "'We'll stand by you, Kit, so keep up your courage and do your best. Be clever to everyone in general.' old sharp in particular, and when a chance comes, have your wits about you and grab it. That's the way to get on," said Lucy, as sagely as if she had been a star for years. "'If I had beauty, I should stand a better chance,' sighed Christie, surveying herself with great disfavor, quite unconscious that to a cultivated eye the soul of beauty was often visible in that face of hers, with its intelligent eyes sensitive mouth, and fine lines about the forehead, making it a far more significant and attractive countenance than that of her friend, possessing only piquant prettiness. "'Never mind, child. You've got a lovely figure and an actress's best feature, fine eyes and eyebrows. I heard old Kent say so, and he's a judge. So make the best of what you've got as I do,' answered Lucy glancing at her own comely little person with an air of perfect resignation. Christie laughed at the adviser, but wisely took the advice, and though she fretted in private, was cheerful and alert in public. Always modest, attentive, and obliging, she soon became a favorite with her mates, and thanks to Lucy's good offices with Mr. Sharp, whose favorite she was, Christie got promoted sooner than she otherwise would have been. A great Christmas spectacle was brought out the next season, and Christie had a good part in it. 
when that was over she thought there was no hope for her as the regular company was full and a different sort of performance was to begin but just then her chance came and she grabbed it the first soubrette died suddenly and in the emergency mr sharp offered the place to christie till he could fill it to his mind lucy was second soubrette and had hoped for this promotion but lucy did not sing well christie had a good voice had taken lessons and much improved of late so she had the preference and resolved to stand the test so well that this temporary elevation should become permanent she did her best and though many of the parts were distasteful to her she got through them successfully while now and then she had one which she thoroughly enjoyed her tilly slow boy was a hit and a proud girl was christie when kent the comedian congratulated her on it and told her he had seldom seen it better done to find favor in kent's eyes was an honor indeed for he belonged to the old school and rarely condescended to praise modern actors his own style was so admirable that he was justly considered the first comedian in the country and was the pride and mainstay of the old theatre where he had played for years of course he possessed much influence in that little world and being a kindly man used it generously to help up any young aspirant who seemed to him deserving he had observed christie attracted by her intelligent face and modest manners for in spite of her youth there was a native refinement about her that made it impossible for her to romp and flirt as some of her mates did but till she played tilly he had not thought she possessed any talent that pleased him and seeing how much she valued his praise and was flattered by his notice he gave her the wise but unpalatable advice always offered young actors finding that she accepted it was willing to study hard work faithfully and wait patiently he predicted that in time she would make a clever actress never a great one of course christie thought he was mistaken and secretly resolved to prove him a false prophet by the triumphs of her career but she meekly bowed to his opinion this docility pleased him and he took a paternal sort of interest in her which coming from the powerful favorite did her good service with the higher powers and helped her on more rapidly than years of meritorious effort toward the end of that second season several of dickens's dramatized novels were played and christie earned fresh laurels she loved those books and seemed by instinct to understand and personate the humor and pathos of many of those grotesque creations believing she had little beauty to sacrifice she dressed such parts to the life and played them with a spirit and ease that surprised those who had considered her a dignified and rather dull young person i'll tell you what it is sharp that girl is going to make a capital character actress when her parts suit she forgets herself entirely and does admirably well her megs was nearly the death of me to-night she's got that one gift and it's a good one you'd better give her a chance for i think she'll be a credit to the old concern kent said that christie heard it and flew to lucy waving Miggs's cap for joy as she told the news what did mr sharp say asked lucy turning round with her face half made up he merely said hum and smiled wasn't that a good sign said christie anxiously can't say 
and Lucy touched up her eyebrows, as if she took no interest in the affair. Christie's face fell, and her heart sunk at the thought of failure. But she kept up her spirits by working harder than ever, and soon had her reward. Mr. Sharp's hum did mean yes, and the next season she was regularly engaged, with a salary of thirty dollars a week. It was a grand step, and knowing that she owed it to Kent, Christie did her utmost to show that she deserved his good opinion. New trials and temptations beset her now, but hard work and an innocent nature kept her safe and busy. Obstacles only spurred her on to redoubled exertion, and whether she did well or ill, was praised or blamed, she found a never-failing excitement in her attempts to reach the standard of perfection she had set up for herself. Kent did not regret his patronage. Mr. Sharp was satisfied with the success of the experiment, and Christie soon became a favorite in a small way, because behind the actress the public always saw a woman who never forgot the modesty of nature. But as she grew prosperous in outward things, Christie found herself burdened with a private cross that tried her very much. Lucy was no longer her friend. Something had come between them, and a steadily increasing coldness took the place of the confidence and affection which had once existed. Lucy was jealous, for Christie had passed her in the race. She knew she could not fill the place Christie had gained by favor, and now held by her own exertions. Still, she was bitterly envious, though ashamed to own it. Christie tried to be just and gentle, to prove her gratitude to her first friend, and to show that her heart was unchanged. But she failed to win Lucy back, and felt herself injured by such unjust resentment. Mrs. Black took her daughter's part, and though they preserved the peace outwardly, the old friendliness was quite gone. Hoping to forget this trouble in excitement, Christie gave herself entirely to her profession, finding in it a satisfaction which for a time consoled her. But gradually she underwent the sorrowful change which comes to strong natures when they wrong themselves through ignorance or willfulness. Pride and native integrity kept her from the worst temptations of such a life, but to the lesser ones she yielded growing selfish, frivolous, and vain, intent on her own advancement, and careless by what means she reached it. She had no thought now beyond her art, no desire beyond the commendation of those whose opinion was serviceable, no care for any one but herself. Her love of admiration grew by what it fed on, till the sound of applause became the sweetest music to her ear. She rose with this hope, lay down with this satisfaction, and month after month passed in this feverish life, with no wish to change it, but a growing appetite for its unsatisfactory delights, an ever-increasing forgetfulness of any higher aspiration than dramatic fame. "'Give me joy, Lucy! I'm to have a benefit next week. Everybody else has had one, and I've played for them all, so no one seemed to begrudge me my turn when dear old Kent proposed it.' said Christie, coming in one night, still flushed and excited with the good news. "'What shall you have?' asked Lucy, trying to look pleased and failing decidedly. "'Masks and faces. I've always wanted to play Peg, and it has good parts for you and Kent, and St. George. I chose it for that reason, for I shall need all the help I can get to pull me through, I dare say.' The smile vanished entirely at this speech, 
and Christie was suddenly seized with a suspicion that Lucy was not only jealous of her as an actress, but as a woman. St. George was a comely young actor who usually played lover's parts with Christie, and played them very well, too, being possessed of much talent and a gentleman. They had never thought of falling in love with each other, though St. George wooed and won Christie night after night in vaudeville and farce but it was very easy to imagine that so much mock passion had a basis of truth, and Lucy evidently tormented herself with this belief. "'Why didn't you choose Juliet? St. George would do Romeo so well,' said Lucy with a sneer. "'No, that is beyond me. Kent says Shakespeare will never be my line, and I believe him. I should think you'd be satisfied with masks and faces.' "'for you know Mabel gets her husband safely back in the end,' "'answered Christie, watching the effect of her words. "'As if I wanted the man. No, thank you. "'Other people's leavings won't suit me,' cried Lucy, "'tossing her head, though her face belied her words. "'Not even though he has heavenly eyes, distracting legs, "'and a melting voice?' asked Christie maliciously, quoting Lucy's own rapturous speeches when the new actor came. "'Come, come, girls, don't quarrel. I won't have it in me room. Lucy's tired to death, and it's not nice of you, Kitty, to come and crow over her this way,' said Mama Black, coming to the rescue, for Lucy was in tears and Christie looking dangerous. "'It's impossible to please you, so I'll say good-night,' and Christie went to her room with resentment burning hotly in her heart. As she crossed the chamber, her eye fell on her own figure, reflected in the long glass, and with a sudden impulse she tinned up the gas, wiped the rouge from her cheeks, pushed back her hair, and studied her own face intently for several moments. It was pale and jaded now, and all its freshness seemed gone. Hard lines had come about the mouth, a feverish disquiet filled the eyes and on the forehead seemed to lie the shadow of a discontent that saddened the whole face. If one could believe the testimony of that countenance, things were not going well with Christie, and she owned it with a regretful sigh, as she asked herself, "'Am I what I hoped I should be? No, and it is my fault. If three years of this life have made me this, what shall I be in ten? A fine actress, perhaps.' but how good a woman! With gloomy eyes fixed on her altered face, she stood a moment struggling with herself. Then the hard look returned, and she spoke out defiantly, as if in answer to some warning voice within herself. No one cares what I am, so why care myself? Why not go on and get as much fame as I can? Success gives me power if it cannot give me happiness, and I must have some reward for my hard work. "'Yes, a gay life and a short one. "'Then out with the lights and down with the curtain.' "'But in spite of her reckless words, "'Christie sobbed herself to sleep that night, "'like a child who knows it is astray, "'yet cannot see the right path "'or hear its mother's voice calling it home. "'On the night of the benefit, "'Lucy was in a most exasperating mood, "'Christie in a very indignant one.' and as they entered their dressing-room they looked as if they might have played the rival queens with great effect. Lucy offered no help, and Christie asked none, but putting her vexation resolutely out of sight, fixed her mind on the task before her. 
as the pleasant stir began all about her, actress-like, she felt her spirits rise, her courage increase with every curl she fastened up, every gay garment she put on, and soon smiled approvingly at herself, for excitement lent her cheeks a better color than rouge. Her eyes shone with satisfaction, and her heart beat high with the resolve to make a hit or die. Christie needed encouragement that night, and found it in the hearty welcome that greeted her, and the full house, which proved how kind a regard was entertained for her by many who knew her only by a fictitious name. She felt this deeply, and it helped her much, for she was vexed with many trials those before the footlights knew nothing of. The other players were full of kindly interest in her success, but Lucy took a naughty satisfaction in harassing her by all the small slights and unanswerable provocations which one actress has it in her power to inflict upon another. Christie was fretted almost beyond endurance, and retaliated by an ominous frown when her position allowed, threatening asides when a moment's by-play favored their delivery, and angry protests whenever she met Lucy off the stage. But in spite of all annoyances, she had never played better in her life. She liked the part, and acted the warm-hearted, quick-witted, sharp-tongued peg with a spirit and grace that surprised even those who knew her best. Especially good was she in the scenes with Triplet, for Kent played the part admirably, and cheered her on with many an encouraging look and word. Anxious to do honor to her patron and friend, she threw her whole heart into the work. In the scene where she comes like a good angel to the home of the poor playwright, she brought tears to the eyes of her audience. And when, at her command, Triplet strikes up a jig to amuse the children, she covered the buckle in gallant style, dancing with all the frolicsome abandon of the Irish orange girl, who for a moment forgot her grandeur and her grief. That scene was her best, for it is full of those touches of nature that need very little art to make them effective. And when a great bouquet fell with a thump at Christie's feet, as she paused to bow her thanks for an encore, she felt that she had reached the height of earthly bliss. In the studio scene, Lucy seemed suddenly gifted with unsuspected skill, for when Mabel kneels to the picture, praying her rival to give her back her husband's heart, Christie was amazed to see real tears roll down Lucy's cheeks, and to hear real love and longing thrill her trembling words with sudden power and passion. That is not acting. She does love St. George, and thinks I mean to keep him from her. Poor dear, I'll tell her all about it to-night, and set her heart at rest, thought Christie. And when Peg left the frame, her face expressed the genuine pity that she felt, and her voice was beautifully tender as she promised to restore the stolen treasure. Lucy felt comforted without knowing why, and the piece went smoothly on to its last scene. Peg was just relinquishing the repentant husband to his forgiving wife with those brave words of hers, when a rending sound above their heads made all look up and start back. All but Lucy, who stood bewildered. Christie's quick eye saw the impending danger, and with a sudden spring she caught her friend from it. It was only a second's work, but it cost her much, for in the act down crashed one of the mechanical contrivances used in a late spectacle and in its fall stretched Christie stunned and senseless on the stage. 
A swift uprising filled the house with tumult. A crowd of actors hurried forward, and the panic-stricken audience caught glimpses of poor Peg lying mute and pallid in Mabel's arms, while Vane wrung his hands and Triplet audibly demanded, Why the devil somebody didn't go for a doctor? Then a brilliant view of Mount Parnassus, with Apollo and the Nine Muses in full blast, shut the scene from sight, and soon Mr. Sharp appeared to ask their patience till the afterpiece was ready, for Miss Douglas was too much injured to appear again. And with an unwanted expression of feeling, the little man alluded to the generous act which perhaps had changed the comedy to a tragedy, and robbed the beneficiary of her well-earned reward at their hands. All had seen the impulsive spring toward, not from, the danger, and this unpremeditated action won heartier applause than Christie ever had received for her best rendering of more heroic deeds. But she did not hear the cordial round they gave her. She had said she would make a hit or die, and just then it seemed as if she had done both, for she was deaf and blind to the admiration and the sympathy bestowed upon her as the curtain fell on the first, last benefit she ever was to have. End of chapter 3